<laughs> you love khakis. I really do. You should see the ill-fitting khakis I'm wearing right now. <laughs> that I was jogging I was... in. <laughs> oh my god. Whew. I'm so sorry. Ben, I had to run to the mic because I I have an obligation and he so valiantly like my knight in shining armor oh, i consider this an obligation train i imagine you're still kind of cooling off from that experience and oh. i appreciate appreciate you being here um oh uh news in my life i got a and bennett you're gonna love this i got a i got a letter from the university of texas and uh the subject line is ut job information and i and i had applied to a job as an audio specialist and so this email, I'm going to read it to you. The University of Texas at Austin. Dear Shane Fender, that's me. Thank you for your application and interest in opportunities at the University of Texas at Austin. And at this point, I'm just like... Neutral to bad start, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, well, okay. I appreciate your... Um, and then to the... Let, let's say, the, let's say the, the email ended here. I would reply, thank you for your email. And I appreciate your interest in my engagement with the application process i ado- i adore maybe that's too much i love university of texas at austin okay so that's where we're at here second line we have reviewed your application and i'm at this point i'm like well at least they saw it i got okay. a foot in the door Based on the job related criteria for the posting r underscore and I won't say it, to protect my privacy. Um, audio specialist. And I'm like, okay, it's the right position. They got the right reference number. They got my name perfect. Mm-hmm. It, all the letters in their correct order. Next line. We regret to inform oh. at this point. Um, I... We regret to inform you that you were you were not the candidate selected to fill the position. Period. And at this point, I've thrown my hands up. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to read the re- give you the courtesy of reading the rest of this email? You should write them back. So I wasn't the candidate. Am I the candidate now? Am I- <laughs> Third line. We appreciate your interest. Okay, maybe a silver lining. Mm-hmm. And encourage you, what are they, my life coach, to pursue other opportunities as they become available. Now, as they become available is an email term. You can you can just say soon, now, or uh... so. This line, we appreciate your interest and encourage you to pursue other opportunities as they become available at the University of Texas at Austin. That is an expert level. Uh, email sentence mm. that it takes a guy like this guy that wrote it who, whose initials are JD and I won't say the full name to re- to respect him and his his choice he made a hard choice today sending me this email um, that we appreciate your interest and encourage you to pursue other opportunities that is just gold as far as I'm concerned you're not going to come across stuff like that except Expert. unless you're dealing with a fucking high level and then uh, remember to visit our employment website. Sincerely, blank, blank, then his position. No PS? So, no P. <clears throat> nope. That's what I... And you know, I'm always looking for a PS. Remember when PS was big? 
No swag, like no sealed with a kiss. <laughs> no, like, invite card that, like, opens up and plays a little song. Hags. <laughs> And we're live! Wow! The car, the but car really, just drove really blew out those headphones. <laughs> my cans, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, turn me down. Turn me down. I'm too hot. I did, um... I did, uh... I did a ketamolocaine at work last night, and I'm just... I feel like a million bucks. What is a ketamolocaine? It's when you do ketamine, molly, and coke in one fell swoop. Is that something that anyone's ever actually done? Well, I guess people have done uh, everything. I've done it before. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I haven't done it all at once, but I've definitely been under the influence of, of all three. three of those things uh, at the same, in the same time. Like sitting, yeah. Yeah. Um, anywho, in related news, we're talking about uh, Sofia Coppola today. The, uh, what are we talking about here? Uh, the Beguiled. The Bling Ring. Uh, Sophia Coppola directed this when she was 27, which is truly, uh, if you wanted another reason to fucking want to throw yourself off the bridge. Uh, well, now I wouldn't say well, I guess that. I, I would probably say good for her for doing it at a young age. Um, something that is mature in subject matter, but, um, also kind of infantile in its uh, presentation and worldview. I would say there, though, I would love to meet people who watch this movie and go like, ugh, ugh, and love, like, Quentin Tarantino, because every, like, cute, flourish Sofia Coppola does is the same sort of, like, winky bullshit that, like, I don't know, like, dude bro directors get away with all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's, I, we don't think any less of okay. that. It's, like, serious. Are you, do you not like this movie? Oh, I love this movie. <laughs> Do, do, were there people that hated on it? No, no. I just I, I I can imagine the same sort of people that love um that the love that sort of shit like rolling their eyes at this movie. Um, mm-hmm. No, people generally like this movie though. I think Sofia Coppola is a director that gets kind of a bad rap. Um, I think because people kind of hold her having obviously grown up uh, with uh, with immense privilege against her, uh, right or wrong. Silver spoon. Yeah, and you know what? That's usually something I hold against people, but I don't know. Like, the John Favreau and, and, and Ron Howard series and watching these directors with, like, an undue chip on their shoulder has kind of given me a new taste for people who just kind of wear their privilege, like Sofia Coppola. Uh-huh. She... Um, what's her dad's name? FFC was on set uh, for this. He was a producer. And I, I watched some of the, like, behind-the-scenes stuff, and he's like, you got to follow your heart. <laughs> Um, and she had a pretty crazy, amazing team for this movie, which was her first feature. And uh, she had done a few shorts before this, namely Lick the Star. Did you watch this? No. Is that on, um, it's probably like a, is it a special feature on like the Blu-ray or something? Maybe. It's on YouTube and it's in, it's on, shot on film in black and white. And it's kind of a, a similar thing. These girls in like eighth grade, um who are like the cool popular bullies uh, and they, they say everything is gay. Uh, just kind of like tease other people and it's 13 minutes long, but it's got similar long shots of people walking down like school hallways looking really cool. Um, and she 
it's a similar subject matter of people that are like 14, 15. But the way she views them is that their conception of how cool and normal and uh, and fashionable they are is held true in the film. Like, there's not an outsider that's like, this is so ridiculous, which I think is the case with... <clears throat> what is this movie called? Uh, the Bling Ring? The Virgin Suicides. I think I feel like every one of her movies is called The Bling Ring for some reason. But The Virgin Suicides has a similar view of, like, everybody... Everybody, even though they're like 13, 12, this age I associate with being super fucking awkward and shitty and um, embarrassing is very glamorous, very polished, and just as cool as you think it is when you're that age. Really? See, because I think part of what I really like about this movie is I think it's cast super well um, in terms of the fact that I think all of the dudes, the, the collective like dude narrator, they all look so realistically like, I don't know, like they're like 14 year old like losers like they just look like such fucking <laughs> dorks um it, i mean it makes it kind of especially jarring when you see like josh hartnett or kirsten dunst on screen but um i would say i i would say they're the only two people that i think really um are captured through that sort of um whatever you want to call that uh, uh subjective I- i'm a teenager and this is I'm, I'm 15 and this is deep sort of lens i don't know in my opinion well i think that i feel like the little italian lothario was similarly portrayed in that way uh, and all the girls uh yeah and i guess all the girls are of course yeah um but that she definitely captures the weird behavior of the boys that are just like uh peeping toms trying to communicate with these girls through the phone mm-hmm. I, I i so so many like little moments with them too are so well written like when the uh like even the one who we're made to believe is like the smartest one who's like the real like brainiac of the group is at that party in the beginning and he says to the one daughter um uh, you know Yale? <laughs> I also really love the um, the shitty like mobster kid, and I think that's something she um, something she communicates really well. Much like on the show Hey Arnold, the way they they operate with all these like urban legends that are all like accepted as fact, like Sammy the uh-huh. Shark having that tunnel. But um, I love when the when the mobster kid is drinking the juice or the punch. He goes, Oh <laughs> yeah, and he talks to the mom, and so, he's like, so "What kind of juice is in this?" That's Jason Schwartzman's little brother. Really. And Sophia Coppola's cousin. Uh, I didn't know the Schwartzmans were also in the Coppola family. Oh yeah, I mean it's uh, I mean Nicholas Cage is in the Coppola family. Talia Shire from uh, Rocky's in the Coppola family. It's a real, uh, it's a real it's who's a family who. affair. It's a family. <laughs> and when you're in a Sophia Coppola movie, it's a family affair. It's not it's like the name of the series, folks. Where you have, uh, where you have. Um, big fat guys yelling at you. You actually have a very famous big fat guy yelling at you. Mm-hmm. It's not like those other sets where you have a big fat guy sweating wine. On this set, you've got a very famous <laughs> big fat guy sweating wine. I was thinking about Sophia's upbringing as somebody that just grew up in California with a super rich dad and her maybe worldview that was lent um, through that lens and how that might I mean, and maybe it's not good for me to just judge her based on how she was raised, but, like, she has this conception of the world as as a place where she focuses on the very popular, beautiful, mythically cool characters in the story or in this world, and also about, like, the tragedy of their life, but also her most... 
I mean, this is adapted from a book, but she was obviously drawn to it for its subject matter. The way she kind of conceives of, like, the darkest thing ever happening is someone committing suicide, which is a very kind of privileged uh, West Coast idea of um, your life being, like, amazingly tragic. I don't know. The movie is very absorbed in the idea that these girls are beautiful, ethereal, perfect... And um, somehow malignantly affected by some deep, bad seed. I I am. I, um, I think it's. I, I guess. It, I mean. And maybe there's. I don't know. Maybe people would say that it's not interesting that she can paint in like multiple shades of privilege. But I really find it interesting that somebody who grew up in like Hollywood can so astutely capture like an ennui that I think is pretty specific to the suburbs. And a, a casual cruelty that I think is pretty, or, or callousness, I guess, that's pretty specific mm-hmm. to the suburbs. Um, the way that the, the the parents are pretty quickly um, gossiping about like a, a local teenager committing suicide and like um, doing worse than like armchair psychologizing, you know, I, I I thought that was captured pretty pretty astutely. Although here's where it shows like where I'm a hypocrite. This movie, much like Alpha Dog, kind of half commits to having like uh, an almost documentary structure. Um, mm. I mean, in this case, I guess we're going from oh, like loose, yeah. we're going, it's supposed to be just like sort of loose memories sort of knocking around, but much like Alpha Dog, mm-hmm. this movie sometimes has, uh, direct address interviews and, uh, voiceover narration. Yeah. Very oddly. Um, she seems to kind of want to adhere to the book cause I'm pretty sure the guy who wrote it was on set the whole time, kind of like giving a thumbs up or not. Mm. And I feel like that is kind of a hindrance, but I don't think overall the film suffers from, being an adaptation and I don't think that takes away from her obvious very clear vision of what it should be mm-hmm. I think like the whole visual style and the writing and the way that people are portrayed and the sort of devices she uses to characterize them are all very distinctive and repeat throughout the movie and you also see them in the short uh, Lick the Star which came out like the year before similar devices that people whispering to each other you're like overhearing gossip and then also having the spotlight on certain characters who the world revolves around and um their kind of word is taken as gospel uh so it's interesting to see her like these devices that might be kind of part of how she is as a person of like the idea of gossip the idea of like young perfection and beauty and the idea of like a deep dark side to uh like suburban life mm-hmm. yeah i mean the theme of, of of rot is pretty consistent throughout the movie um i think that might be the opening shot is them like posting that the, the tree is like poisoned um mm-hmm. we were talking you and i before jumping on the mic about how this movie made us wish that we went to a school where they wore school uniforms i wish <laughs> I, I mean in general i i, I can't i hope a, a, an upcoming decade is one of these sort of maximalist uh outrageous decades like the 70s bell bottoms uh-huh. josh hartnett walks around in those like heeled boots oh can you imagine strutting around the halls <laughs> in those things jesus uh-huh. christ i had uniforms in elementary school and everyone's was either Stained with piss and and <gasps> um, food, mm-hmm. and um, I mean we were very young. We didn't really know anything. We just threw on like garb, mm-hmm. 
Or people. I remember this one girl smelled like bleach all the time. Mm-hmm. Everybody always had so. juice mustaches. <laughs> Everyone, not all, yeah, and like sucking on the collar of their shirt so it like hangs below their belly button. I like one of the things I like about this movie, and it's obviously the the uh, the Lisbon girls are all supposed to be sort of enigmatic and um, you know captured from a very subjective perspective. I like the way that the their parents are also fairly um mysterious and are sort of um i don't know only shaded through like these kind of like little um quotidian moments like we get james woods like talking to the plants um yeah we get kathleen turner sort of like silently sitting in the bedroom um i like that they don't hit you over the head with the fact that they're a religious family um Mm -hmm. it's 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 all it's communicated through like icons being just sort of like silently in the room like when the kid when the kid who's wearing the Pete Campbell sweater goes up to, um, I think it's Teru. It's not Cecilia's room. It's it's one of the older daughter's rooms in the beginning. It sees like the crucifix on the floor, or when he's talking to the priest, mm-hmm. and the crucifix is very obviously on the wall. But they don't like. There's no scenes of them like praying. There's no like creepy evangelical quality. Like I, I like that she made them just like emotionally distant Catholics and like let us mostly fill in the blanks. Um, I think the scenes yeah. where they lean heavily on what's actually going on in the house are among the weakest. Like, the scene where she's burning the records, like, it's funny, and it's in keeping with um, the way Sofia Coppola really pays attention to, like, the logistical, tactile details of all of these unfortunate situations. Like, you think of them, like, pulling out the fence, or him trying to pull Cecilia off of the fence, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's smoke from the records. But it also, I think it puts too fine a point on it. Like, mm-hmm. ha- having her very obvious, having the mother very obviously move to get stricter because of, um, you know, a sermon in church. Like, I feel like that, it's like... It's it's a the sort of detail I don't think these kids would know, or, mm. and and b makes it a little too obvious what exactly is going on here, you know. Yeah, it kind of overcharacterizes them when it's much more af- affecting to just see the mom sitting alone in her room, yeah, and then hearing about the punishment. The is, way because because you never really know. I mean, because you, you you can only sort of connect the dots about like your neighbors or like your teacher's personal lives. And for the most part, I think she does a good job of like um them th- them being able to infer just enough and us seeing kind of just enough. I also think they let, put a little too fine a point on it when she gets back um after she's Mrs. Curfew and we see Kathleen Turner sort of like slapping her around. I wish I wish they had both just kind of been standing like silently in the doorway. It's more ominous, it's more mm. suggestive, it's more like provocative, and it's it's ultimately, <laughs> I think, more, a more like nuanced way to depict the characters, you know? Um, yeah, I think uh, something about the overall perspective of this is that, like, since it is told in the future and it's kind of in the past, we're in this m- middle area where uh, what you're watching, you don't really know if it's just like a, a reenactment of a story or like someone's idea of what actually happened or if it's like a glimpse into like the actual events so that you kind of are put in a space where the girls are equally just dreamy and kind of just float around like barely even eat anything or talk much um but are still we're still kind of faced with like the highlights and lowlights of their lives like things like ripping out the uh the fence or uh seeing the girl jump onto the fence those are like very clearly illustrated but them like laying about in their room is just this kind of scene where nothing's happening and you just she it seems like Sofia Coppola just wants us to imagine like beautiful girls laying 
around in their room. Yeah, but I, uh, I and I do think those. I do think shots like that, and I, I to, then the shot of um, you know the, the the neighborhood kid walking around through like their bathroom and bedroom. I I, I do think those shots as 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 much as they are just like snapshots and glances they're very obviously like attuned to like the specific detail of like i don't know these girls lives and like the spaces mm. they occupy so it's it's a movie that despite being filtered through this like kind of interesting collective um uh you know past version of the male gaze still very <clears throat> uniquely i think tuned to um the the female character's experience it's okay do you want to talk about the male gaze uh, it's been a long time since I read Laura Mulvey. <laughs> uh. <laughs> the male gaze is like a concept that was introduced, but it, it was that the person that mm-hmm. came up with it. She uh, she was like, oh, you can view all of kind of art history or you can view works of art um, through this tool that I have witnessed called the male gaze. And she kind of goes back to all these pieces of work. I I haven't actually read it, but I've just heard about it and it's referenced all the time now. It's kind of this it's a a, a feminist viewing of of works of art and saying like the male gaze is present here and it's like when a a male viewer is like oogling a woman and kind of exalts her or what what can you tell me about the male gaze? Um I mean as a theory I mean it's basically just the idea that like because the the because cinematic history has been shown to us ma- mainly through the, the the works and experiences of male directors who typically mm-hmm. uh, use the camera as a way to sort of you know ogle women's bodies and tell mm-hmm. these kind of uh, you know heteronormative stories that are typically that typically culminate in you know a, a couple getting together. Cinema effectively has a, a fundamentally male perspective. The idea is that you have now. And I, and it's I try to avoid these things, and I think we all should try to avoid these things of using terms that reference a kind of critical tool that is applied throughout different films, like saying that um, I don't know what's another it, like like if you view uh, what's what's the the Bechdel test? If you view every film in terms of the Bechdel test, I mean you're you're judging it on a pass fail basis i mean it's a way it's a way of understanding but i don't think it should be a way of viewing i i i bring it up just because film critics use it all the time and art critics do all the time and i and i don't want it to like get in the way of us having a meaningful meaningful conversation about it because maybe i'm derailing the conversation no i i i just i think and and to 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 succinctly sum up uh, what the male gaze means, it's basically the act of depicting women in in visual arts. Typically, that is it's coming from a fundamentally masculine and fundamentally heterosexual perspective, so making them sexual objects. And I actually think, I, I mean, I I'm not the person to do it, obviously, and I I would need to think about this movie. You know, I, I would really need to unpack this movie, but I I think it's one of the more interesting examples of someone kind of employing and deconstructing the male gaze at the same time. I mean, it's it's a movie coming from a male adolescent perspective directed by a young woman that's, you know, ostensibly about the the female characters, you know, like Lux, who, who I don't know is, who might not be given a single scene of her own in the entire movie is, is, is ostensibly the main character. I mean, this, this movie is, is a, you, you could write thesis, thesis after thesis about what this film does and <laughs> says about the male games. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think it's an inherently negative thing. It's just characteristic. Um, 
of course I'm going to I'm going to eat my words here. Um but the uh the idea that Sofia Coppola directed this and she she is a woman and kind of exalting these young girls um and like dressing them very like innocently and then Lux being this character who's a flirt um it it couldn't it couldn't be a, like Francis Ford Coppola writing this movie or a man an old man writing this movie it just would not it wouldn't fly um but a, a man wrote the book so i don't know maybe 1999 was a different time i think uh, sophia coppola gives it a unique angle where it's like it re- retains its purity without feeling like you're a creep for watching it uh-huh. Um, how old was Kirsten Dunst when they made the film? Because it's it, it's a little jarring that she's supposed to be fourteen, and also I guess that Josh Hartnett is supposed to be like sixteen. Um, for a she's movie that's otherwise 16, kind of seventeen. For a movie that's otherwise immaculately cast, they sort of stick out, which I guess is the point. But uh-huh. um, I, I'd be interested to read the book because I mean, from off the top of my head, this has to be one of the better adaptations of a well-regarded book that I can think of. Because people like the book, mm-hmm. I think it was like a you know mm-hmm. National Book Award finalist and and, and such. Um, the so I, I I feel like she really elaborately designed the sets and the costumes. So I was looking at who the uh, costume designer was. It's Nancy Steiner, who also did the costumes for Safe by Todd Haynes and uh, Little Miss Sunshine. Some interesting, uh, and she also did Lost in Translation. My mind is completely broken because I thought you were talking about the Jason Statham movie Safe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like safe you gotta hand it to her um no safe is a incredible Todd Haynes early movie that uh has a similar atmospheric kind of total vision quality that this does um I it seems like a lot of the people that worked on this in the art department were mostly people constructing it and not necessarily like one main art director um and so I mean it just kind of makes me think that she had a lot of control over set design and worked together doing costumes because also the costumes in this are a lot like her stuff in the beguiled i feel like she just kind of has this uh this uh visual aspiration um that very much ties into the way things are acted and written, uh, it seems like she kind of has to operate when in control of those things in order to like tell tell the story that she wants to or like express the things that she wants to successfully. Um, because I feel like so much of this movie before I saw it, I I had in my mind the vision of like what it's supposed to be or what it looks like, maybe just from like the press materials of j- it just being this like kind of dreamy girlish uh, adolescent movie. Yeah, she's got a very definite aesthetic um, that she employs kind of across her all of her work. It's sort of like gauzy. I don't know. I I, uh, I personally love it. Her movies are all, even, I don't know, even ones I don't especially like, um, like the one half of Somewhere that I've seen. They're, they're interesting movies to live in. There's like a kind of uh-huh. quiet melancholy to them, but all, there's something also kind of like comfortable. They've got a very warm bath feel to them, but like without the sitting in your own filth aspect, you know? Mm, yeah, she's kind of, it's kind of spotless. Like it's not dirty at all. There's nothing unattractive about any part of this movie. Um. Yeah, I mean, 
even even like the uglier aspects of the way people talk about other people in the movies uh, in the movie and, and the more um I, I don't know i think of comments like the older version of trip talking about like well, at least i got to taste that kind of love once um that was really <laughs> even weird. really horrifying <laughs> things like that i think are in service of uh what the movie's trying to say about these kind of people um mm. I really appreciated the one scene when the priest is in the house because he walks through and kind of blasts open this perspective of like what is actually happening in this house. He's an outsider who's maybe never been in this home and he comes in and he talks to the husband or the dad and we get all these kind of beautifully framed shots of everybody in the in the house and the dad is framed by like plants and he's kind of spacey and the the shot is pretty fixed on him and it just like totally characterizes him without him having to say anything. And the priest goes upstairs and sees the girl and like the priest is, does this. I forget. I don't know who the actor is. Scott Glenn. We saw him backdraft weird to see him playing a priest. He's a guy that usually oh, plays. Wow. Well, not that priests aren't creeps here and there, but uh, I don't know. Sure, he usually sure. plays, you know, ax murderers and shit. <laughs> um, Scott Glenn. I got to hand it to him because he walks through the house and does this sort of, it's as if he's not from the movie and he's stepping in and just kind of like looking around at the set or something. Uh, he like is really res- re- responsive to the things around him. He goes up and talks to the girls and they're all just kind of laying around and he's like, uh, if you need anything, let me know. And he doesn't even really say anything, but we get these like, we, the priest provides this perspective of somebody just observing this family living after this horrible tragedy and it allows Sophia to do these vignettes, uh, the pinnacle of which, which I think is one of the better scenes in the movie, is seeing the mom f- sitting on her bed, just framed by like all the shit in her room, just sitting in silence, and the priest just kind of like creeping in. And I don't even know what happens. He like leaves, or he says, oh. uh, he tells her they're gonna rule the death an accident. But um, oh yeah, I, I mean, I, I those are the two performances I'd most like to highlight in the movie are Kathleen Turner and James Woods. Obviously, James Woods has has evolved into. Uh, a really unfortunate cretin online. Uh, I think he was one of the what few people. What did he pe- do? He's just a really weird, angry conservative on Twitter. I think he's one of the few people oh, that gotcha. Twitter has actually banned because um, he would like, <laughs> fucking harass people and just spout like conspiracy theories. But the scene when he's uh-huh. when he's like watching the baseball game, trying to do like anything to take his mind off of uh, like his dead daughter, and he says as the priest is walking up the stairs, he goes like, uh, "Father," and then there's like a beat. Scott Glenn turns around and James Woods just sort of like defeatedly points to the TV and goes, double play. Uh, Really just (laughs) someone like just really wrestling with like wanting to like reach out to somebody wanting to like articulate, wanting wanting to like articulate uh, themselves and how they feel and uh, coming up short, even in conversation with someone they obviously consider to be a a pillar of the community. Yeah. Great, great uh, single line from Sofia Coppola for writing this script and being able to express these really small relationships um, just in a moment. She has so many characters, which is kind of, I feel like out, it's uncharacteristic for maybe like a first feature film to focus on so many people at once. Uh, the daughters all kind of operate as like a unit, <laughs> but they do in certain points just get are able to express themselves in different ways, which definitely uh, kind of shines a light on how her directing is. It seems like she's, she is talking to them individually about who their character is and, you know, how they should 
be just exist in relation to other people. Uh, so we get these kind of background moments uh, that express a relationship that isn't clear beforehand. And she's a, she is able to leave things up to the viewer based on small reactions that certain people in the family have without having to like spell them out that this she this girl's uptight and this girl is this other way uh yeah and i think she i i I think she makes fun of um the um the the self-satisfaction of a lot of like close reading by having the kids um like uh uh, reading through cecilia's journal and trying to make their like Mm. inferences about like her psychology and trying to like piece together i mean i mean the whole movie is that because the whole i mean the the the, the conceit is that they're looking back on it and they still have this collection of like artifacts from the house across the street i mean there's i think she's i I guess it's a feature of the book so i think eugenides was doing this as well was sort of i don't know having some fun at that impulse you know whether Mm -hmm. it's um you know whether it's it's, um uh conclusions you're drawing about people who live in your neighborhood or conclusions you're drawing about the motivations of, of of characters in a book you know Trip Fontaine has a legendary above ground pool in this movie and two dads. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. There's two like hot seventies, like cocktail dads. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. One looks like a Hollywood producer and the other has a mustache. The, the classic seventies uh, <laughs> mustache. Um, uh-huh. This movie has a Definitely. great score and also great, a great soundtrack. Uh, both. Yeah. Which is rare. Uh, she got, air a french band to do a lot of the music for it which is interesting and uh heart crazy on you carol king james taylor so you got a friend um the 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 making out to crazy on you is the best making out any movie ever perfectly captures high school like yeah woo yeah um there's a scene where josh hartnett's sitting in his car like kind of dejected after not kissing kirsten dunst and then she comes running out like surprises him and makes out with him um and then crazy on you starts playing it's it's pretty fucking intense really takes you to back to making out in the car back in the day especially if you don't notice her running across the lawn in the background it's a really like it's a really bracing scene uh mm-hmm. the movie yeah the movie does a really great job of communicating what it's like to be that age I think as we said already, uh, fitting that it fitting that it focuses on suicide and looking back on those years, boy, don't don't so many things you said and did make you want to fucking kill yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she doesn't she she is able to by showing only the really kind of highlight parts and the very low light parts. There's no like them just bo- like eating even the the scenes where they're eating dinner there's like a guy there and it's really charged sexually and uh just between the family mm-hmm. uh and so like it makes me think of being that age because all the memories i have are either very positive or very negative mm-hmm. um and not really uh not really like my memory of it is not the mumblecore version of what actually happened uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's very much like a highlights reel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, I, I think that works really well in two ways. Uh, it, it both captures the kind of like intense emotional pitch of everything when you're that age, and mm-hmm. also yeah, the fact that you really only make a point to embed something that was especially horrible or especially great in your memory. 
Uh-huh. There's very little. Uh, there's very little quotidian detail when you look back on like the school day. Sorry to use quotidian twice in one podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought you would catch that. <laughs> uh, the perennially underrated Kirsten Dunst uh, just got a uh, just got a star on the Hollywood <laughs> Walk of Fame. Finally, you've seen her twice. God bless her. Yeah, I saw her in a vintage store with uh, her husband, that redhead guy. He, I was like, sh- I was like looking through T-shirts at the store, and then this like schlubby hunch guy just next to me is like lazily flipping through shirts and i was like oh fuck you're the guy from fargo i didn't say anything and then uh then annie was like kirsten dunst is upstairs trying stuff on and she was like with her family like having a lot of fun and just like being normal and i was like man they're people too wow so that's like big big learning experience for me yeah Mm -hmm. and i also saw her just walking through the airport once so So when someone asks me who's my guys, <laughs> hey, who you fucking that's guy? The first one. Oh man, now listening to that show has been. Do you want to talk about learning experiences? I've been dipping back, I'm dipping my toes back into WTF, kind of listening to uh-huh. some of the highlights, some new episodes. Uh, his interviews with people who've subsequently been canceled have been really illustrative, and um, he's taught me a couple important lessons. Most importantly, mm-hmm. I don't have to apologize to anybody for having a shitty attitude and a bad personality. <laughs> you should be praised for it. In actually. fact, I should get the biggest. I should get the biggest. Po- I should get the first podcast because of it. <laughs> oh man! Thank God for Conan O'Brien. We can finally like. We can finally maybe monetize this. Yeah, yeah. He really brought podcasts to the uh, to the top of um, culture. What is his podcast called? Um. C- Cuck and Conan. Conan O'Brien is a cuck, I think, or something like that. Oh, that's cool. I mean, that's cool. I thought my tweet about auditioning to be the cuck and cuck porn was really funny, and you were the only one that favorited it. <laughs> um, do you want to? Do you want to say it? Um, I'm uh, I'm auditioning to play the cuck in a new series of uh, cuck old fetish videos. I really want to finally monetize my ability to wear ill-fitting khakis and look sad. um speaking of kiss speaking of giving somebody a big smooch does that breath spray Mm -hmm. exist is that something that only is used in movies that when they're (laughs) getting out of the car to go to like the homecoming dance and the kids are spraying breath Uh spray never seen that in Uh, life i've had it i've gotten it just because i've seen it in movies and i think it only exists because it's in movies but yeah it's what's it called like bronca um something bronca Bronco Busters? I have no idea. Bronco Bust and Boiling um, Butt Cheeks. Anywho. I thought it was crazy when they were drinking Butt Ice behind the bleachers at the homecoming, and he says in the voiceover, <laughs> Butt Ice, babes love it. <laughs> Truer <laughs> words, man. True words are never spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, like, th- th- okay, so he like, so he's like a, a shitty like teen boy, and he like leaves there on the football fields uh, to yeah. like get in trouble with their parents. Isn't her dad his fucking math teacher? What does he think is gonna happen? Like, what? Like, even if you're yeah. a completely, even if you're so a completely thoughtless, <laughs> self-absorbed person, like, it just seems like it just seems wildly out of character for someone who would have any any even self-interest. I don't know. Yeah, he's kind of uh, he's kind of very cool, but he doesn't have much charisma. The way he acts throughout the movie is just kind of a pale figure that exists as like the hot guy, mm-hmm. which I guess is fitting for who he is. 
what's you can imagine like you can imagine if people he he she writes him very well and directs him very well and he he performs very well the sort of person that you would be embarrassed to look back on being attracted to i think the fact that he mm. like really he doesn't you're right he doesn't say much he's just very like it's the sort of uh the 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 sort of um he's more like there's a good <laughs> For a movie that's technically narrated by a bunch of like teenage boys, I, there's some good female gaze in this movie too. Of um, mm. Josh Hartnett is just kind of like a hot object. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I spend so much time on this podcast talking about how hot the dudes in all of these movies are. I'm really going to catch a lot of flack <laughs> from the boys. I think. Oh no. <laughs> oh no! The captain of the football team is going to whip my ass. Finally, he's been begging to for so long. <laughs> I'm going to get fucking rat tail as I'm running around the swimming pool. Oh god! And usually the usually the lifeguard is so gung ho about policing the no running by the pool policy, but uh, now she's nowhere to be like, found. Um, I feel like now that our podcast is uh accepted onto somebody else's website. I I feel like you feel this too, but um, the idea that we have potentially something to be proud of is so foreign, mm-hmm. and like sh- shame is so locked in to like oh. uh, our conception of the podcast and us expressing ourselves, mm-hmm. and also tied in very much with like being made fun of it potentially in high school uh-huh. by people we don't even like. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, shame is is so baked into everything about me. I mean, like even <laughs> even if I'd never learned any like shame through like experience or like personal uh-huh. like failing or like anxiety, like it's 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 you get a sprinkling on it. Uh, you get a sprinkling of it just by virtue of being born Catholic, and then you're mm, really kind of yeah. in the crucible. And for, I think for yeah. for both of us, where this podcast is concerned, yeah, we're taking any pride in anything we create is concerned. Where like being honest about anything is concerned. There's a certain level of like, oof, yeah, indigestion-inducing like, I mean, self-doubt. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I've um, I've recommended to people the podcast, but I always have the caveat of like, and I'm sorry, mm-hmm. and I and please like i always feel like i'm gonna get fired for something that i say which also like the shame tied in with like having a boss and having a job is very much just very baked in i don't know if it's growing up in suburbs growing up in the northeast where everyone's miserable or being catholic or uh having siblings or everything but i i know people now that just do not have it Mm mm-hmm or like people that are just like stage performers or I don't know, are proud of things that it's just completely foreign to me. Even if I do something that like I think I put a lot of work into, I cannot like get past this idea that, oh, it's just for me and it's my mm-hmm. psychotic project. This is this is a yeah, this podcast and, and honestly everything I write for work, even stuff I put my name on, is basically just my fucking cork board. And <laughs> oof you know woe betide whoever decides to look at it because good lord um mm-hmm. yeah and i've never mm-hmm. recommended the podcast to someone without caveating like um and you're gonna want to skip around you're gonna want to like shuffle the episodes honestly and you know you get a dud you get a dud <laughs> <laughs> and i mean like even doing the interview with craig it's like we i made a big caveat like do not listen to fucking half the shit that we do mm-hmm. it's like i can i can't i cannot get behind the idea of being proud um or like satisfied. Mm-hmm. I am um, so yeah, I, working I, on that. 
I can't imagine life as anything but a self-loathing narcissist. Like, I'm really, you know that meme of like the, I don't know if they're supposed to be arm wrestling or high-fiving, but it's like two seemingly from, opposed uh, things kind of meeting in the middle. I think it's from Predator. It's a, it's a cartoon. It's a, it's drawn. It's a two big the, arms. The two guys, like, yeah. yeah, no, it's a scene from, uh, I'm pretty sure it's Isn't a scene a from Predator. I could be wrong, but. Um, I th- maybe. But you oh. know the meme I'm referring to, right? Or, or even yeah, if it's yeah, two yeah. different memes, they're communicating, I imagine, the same idea. I mean, that that's me. It's uh-huh. self-loathing. <laughs> Just paralyzing self-loathing. Emboldening narcissism. Goop is pouring off of it like the fucking the the the, the gun from uh, Ghostbuster. It's like fucking shaking. The I sang Ghostbusters at karaoke right after I sang uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, and then I brought it home with Coconut by Harry Nilsson. Did you do um, Bruce Springsteen's version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town? <laughs> No, I did. I couldn't find it. They just had like a generic version. Mm-hmm. And there's all these p- points, and I'm sure Bruce Springsteen omitted these, where it's like a ring, a ting, ting, and a ting, a ting, too. My monkey and my butt and my pe and my little toys too. It's like all this like kind of like baby talk in the Ooh. middle of it. <laughs> um, amazing if Bruce to... did not omit that. <laughs> little Steven comes in with like. <laughs> My tiny ting ting and my root doo doo doo. Oh man, the uh, the fact that uh, Bruce Springsteen can come from this, be cut from the same uh, regional cloth as us, and be just like a hero and really proud of himself, yeah. um, makes him even more of just an admirable figure. If I can, if I can bring up a Star Is Born one more time, something I forgot to mention when we were talking about you finally having seen it, we did kind of allude to this and talking about how the music, under like any other circumstances, would normally strike us as corny. But um, Bradley Cooper captures the thing that Bruce also captures really well: the 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 um, the two opposed ideas being held at the same time. The idea that someone could be so fucking corny, but also the most just <laughs> cool aspirational figure you can imagine. Because like Bruce is Bruce oh. Fox, Bruce rules. Bruce is you know, is is a god among men, but he's also got like a soul patch, and he wears vests, and he says things yeah. like, hey, buddy, rock and roll. He affects that voice. There's something fundamentally uh-huh. really corny about Bruce Springsteen, just like there is something really yeah. fundamentally corny about Jackson Maine and mm-hmm. rock and roll as like a as a concept. But oh, for sure, for those that can really for those that can really pull it off, they somehow manage to be you know simultaneously really corny and the coolest people living. I wish Jackson yeah. Maine was a real person so badly. <laughs> i mean bruce is a real person yeah i guess i think that so what maybe what made his press his like popularity in new jersey so powerful is that jersey is a place where there's nothing really to be proud of i mm. mean you know i'm not from there so i don't know but there's not much and to uh to get uh to get past your like um homophobia and uh i don't know distaste for uh performance and uh, really just embrace a guy who doesn't give a who's just so overly passionate uh, someone said the other day yeah i like bruce he's just a little too passionate <laughs> uh, talking about uh baby geniuses baby driver baby driver now baby driver is an adult movie uh starring tom deloise and ruby d Speaking of Dom DeLuise and driving, <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen Cannonball Run? No. Ooh. 
Boy, would you get a kick out of it? <laughs> I'm not telling you. I'm asking you. <laughs> I know there's a second one. There certainly is. Um, another thing that I wasn't sure really existed in real life, and maybe this is just me never having had this experience, were Rorschach tests seem like they were something that was just invented because they look cool on like TV and in movies. Oh, yeah. And in, like comic books. I was trying to interpret them myself, and I said, mm-hmm. um, what's funny? <laughs> My wife's ass. I don't know. <laughs> My wife's ass. My wife's other ass. Uh-huh. Oh, man. Last week, I was wiping my other other ass. Like, <laughs> that's a real current reference for all my heads. My other car is my ass. <laughs> I'm a proctologist. I drive a brown probe. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so... For Sofia Coppola, The Virgin Suicides, I would say it's a very strong start. She yeah. she she definitely uh, benefited from having a lot of money from her father, uh, but she didn't. I don't think she blew it. I don't think she you know was superfluous with any of the elements of the movie. The set design's really beautiful, and I'm sure that having a big budget allowed her to get all these locations and all these actors that made this seemingly small time sort of movie seem very complete. And uh, the way she portrays the different actors in it as having distinct uh, selves while operating as like a whole family uh, was really unique and definitely a stamp that I'll be looking for in her future movies. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, it, it's among the more confident uh, debuts I can think of in uh, you know recent years. I mean, this movie's 20 years old, but that still qualifies to me as fairly recent. Um, and, you know, yes, she's obviously had an immense amount of privilege and uh, making movies this good uh, is a little bit easier, one would assume, when you're the child of a famous filmmaker, but, 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 this isn't Bryce Dallas Howard's dad documentary. This is a, <laughs> <laughs> this is a film that can really stand on its own, and Sofia Coppola, I think, and I think we'll find throughout the series, is a filmmaker that certainly uh, gets by on her own merits, uh, or at least, you know, could afford to. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And when you, when you said, like, she kind of, show, like, even though she's super privileged, she does have different kind of lenses to view that through and different characters to filter that uh worldview through with like the parents and the boys across the street um she's not she's not uh made kind of dumb by her privilege or she's not she isn't succumbed to like her own perspective she has a worldview for sure but kind of diffuses it in all these different ways through different characters and devices like gossip or devices like ripping trees up or, um, you know, plot elements that do serve a, a an emotional purpose and a sort of overall... Um, like, like seeing a tree being ripped up is not something to break the movie up, but uh, kind of lends to a larger feeling of discord and decay rot like you said um but she she strikes me as sophia coppola as a person i feel like she hasn't aged um she's just still 27 years old 
like physically, if you look at her, she looks exactly the same as she did when she was filming this movie. I feel like she really adores hot girls in high school. Like still to this day, that's Mm -hmm. kind of the pinnacle. Um, And she seems pretty proudly kind of superficial. uh, And I mean that in like the sort of high school way and the way of like, everything being a crisp visual representation and nothing being kind of left in shadow, at least with the Virgin suicides. Um, and, and a movie like the bling ring is kind of a testament to that of her just kind of relishing and playing with the kind of archetype of the hot, cool girls that are like bad and, uh, have a dark side. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely got um, pet themes, like any great auteur. I mean, I think we'll find that, that wealth and privilege are, are pretty pretty central uh, to everything that she's made. Um, mm-hmm. I'm excited to see more of her films with Kirsten Dunst. Um, I think they're a, a great underrated um, actor-director partnership. Uh, fitting that the perennially underrated Kirsten Dunst should be in such an underrated <laughs> actor-director pair. Sorry to say the perennially mm-hmm. <clears throat> underrated Kirsten Dunst twice on one podcast. Um, you just got to. I just have to. Uh, yeah, I, um, I and I also, I mean, Sofia Coppola is one of really only two, and this is maybe a, a tad reductive, but I, I, she and Catherine Bigelow are basically the, the, the well, it's more than a tad reductive. They're, they're the two <laughs> American filmmakers, they're the two American women filmmakers who, you know, your average person can name, and they're the two that have been Oscar vetted. And whereas Catherine Bigelow has kind of made her bones on, uh, films in historically masculine genres focused on men, you know, military movies, mm. uh, being mm-hmm. military and like cop movies. Um, Sofia Coppola is yeah. a pretty, uh, pretty unabashedly feminine filmmaker who makes movies about, you know, young women and uh, mm-hmm. the lives of young women. So, uh, you know, uh, kind of unique uh, in, in that sense, at least amongst uh, directors who've had her same level of mainstream success and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, critical vetting. Yeah, she hasn't seemed to been be like compromise her vision be compromised by a potentially just like huge budget movie that was thrown at her. She almost made, or I mean, almost made. I mean, she was attached to make uh, Disney's live live action adaptation of The Little Mermaid for a while, and then never my gave word, other. yeah, boy, can you? <laughs> thank God, <laughs> thank God, we got the beguiled <laughs> instead of fucking uh, <laughs> another shot for shot remake. Uh huh. Well, Bennett, it's been a pleasure. Um, welcome everybody to uh, the new ser- the Sunday Best series on hosted by Split Tooth. Thanks a lot to the Split Tooth team for having us. Look forward to talking more about Sofia Coppola in upcoming episodes. Yeah, hey, uh, um, everybody! I'd just like to give a big gap toothed welcome to all my uh, Split Tooth fans out there. Uh. Get ready to sink your rotten teeth into this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Love you like a sister. Peace. Peace.